Alrighty, welcome to Romero Records Podcast. Today we have on Margaret Haltom. Awesome. How's it going, Margaret? Good. I'm I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So y- you also work for the works I had on Lindsay Pender a while back, but um, yeah, I'm interested in all the stuff the works does. Uh, Lindsay gave a good synopsis, but um, she's got one job, you've got another. So yeah. <laughs> we got something else completely different to talk about and, and to get into. Um, so first off, are you from Memphis? Yes, I'm from Memphis originally. I... Um, Moved away for about seven years, and then I moved back in the fall of this year, in September. Um, So, yeah, Yeah. I think I actually found you from um, the Memphis 20 Under 30. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How was how was that like? I mean, did you were you surprised or was it just like ah, I knew I was doing getting this or (laughs) no? Yeah, it was very it was very surprising. Um, Lindsay and I were both in it, which is fun to have two of us from the same organization uh, be like 10% of the yeah, right. of the class. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think it was just a, you know, it was, it was a very sweet honor being, moving back to my hometown and getting to know Memphis again as an adult and really deciding to start my career here. Um, like be, I'm an urban planner. I finished my master's in urban planning in 2020 and coming back to Memphis and having this like as the start of my urban planning career kind of feels like I have come full circle in some Mm. ways. Like when you're little and you get interested in city planning and community development work, like you see your hometown and your city very differently than you do when you grow up and move back. Um, So it was very, I I thought it was, it was very sweet. It was, it was a really funny awards ceremony because all of us there are in our twenties and a lot of people are from Memphis. So people's like parents are there. So you kind of be like, you're like a kid, yeah, yeah. like you're in high school or Field like, <laughs> yeah. and everyone could bring two guests. So everybody kind of has their, their parents like standing over their shoulders, That's which hilarious. was very, which was very sweet. Cause we're all in this era of like almost growing out of yeah. that phase of life, but still having one foot in the door of parents being very present in our lives, especially if we're from Memphis yeah. and our parents are, you know, around. Um, so it was a very earnest event. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're, they're going to be proud of you, right? For, yeah. for doing something. And, uh, I'm sure y'all are in the newspaper and then articles online and all that kinds of stuff. So I'm sure it's fun. I actually was, um, I make mad beats. Do you know who that is? No. He's a big time producer in, in actually in Memphis. And I think cool. he, uh, lived in New York for a while and produced for a lot of big name rappers and whatnot. And then he's moved back. Um, he started his own studio and whatnot, but cool. he was on the news the other night yeah. and, um, they were doing a story about him and, um, he, he posted on Instagram. He was like, um, my family members were telling me that they were so happy to see me on TV. And he was like, sometimes I forget that I should, tell them that, you know, I'm on TV because he, he didn't tell anybody. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, sometimes I forget, you know, people actually care that, you know, I'm on TV, I'm, I'm in the news and that kind of stuff. So it's, I mean, it's interesting for, you know, for younger people, you know, sometimes some younger people, they, they, they want everybody to know everything they do. And then others, they don't really care. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. And I think the social media age has made it has made some people like become more present online and some people kind of retreat from that because it seems like you have to go all out and be an influencer if you're going to be present online <laughs> or like have this big public persona. Yeah. And so I can see people be like, oh, I'm not going to, why would I tell my own parents I'm on the news? <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, yeah, yeah, some people probably treat the news like it's Facebook or something. It's yeah, like, yeah. yeah. You you feel embarrassed by seeing people yeah, on there yeah, and stuff exactly. like that. But 
you know, it's yeah, it's just real life. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you you just want to tell people, you know, what you're what you're up to, what you're doing. So yeah, um, I, that's why I love about doing this podcast because, like, have you ever done a podcast? No, okay, it's my so first podcast. This is your first podcast. Yes, so. I listen to a lot of podcasts on Spotify, <laughs> so very exciting. So the the aspect of it is really cool when it's somebody's first podcast is because number one, I'm giving you a platform to just say what's on your mind. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and it's, and it's long form. And also none of this is scripted. Like I have no idea what I'm saying right now. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to ask you or, or what we're going to talk about, but the idea of it is for you to just explain what you do and, you know, where you've been, how you came up yeah. and in a long form that is able for you to, you know, I guess, display your thoughts and you're not, you don't feel I guess pressured, you know, to mm. say certain things yeah. and to, to represent a, a certain way or something like that. So yeah. that's that's what I like about it. Yeah, like I don't have to be here to give my quick elevator pitch about something and try to sell something. Yeah, exactly. Ugh. Trying to sell something. Like a lot of times people get on podcasts and they're on there to sell something and they just try to make everything about that thing. But, you know, I've had people ask me to come on the podcast. Um just to talk about something that they're doing. I'm like, hey, look, <laughs> this is not a commercial. This is a podcast that, you know, this, this is just me wanting to get to know people. So if if you want to come on and you're interesting, yes, sure. All right, we'll talk. But if you just want to just blab about, you know, look at me and this is what I'm doing, like, uh, that's different because I'm, I'm here to educate, you know, mm. the people who are listening. You know, I'm not just here to just for you to you know, talk about whatever you want to talk about. So <laughs> that's cool. That's, I don't know. It's a, it's a touchy subject for some people because they, I don't know, they, they feel like certain platforms should be used for that. But yeah, this, hmm. this, ain't, this ain't the one. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so let's get to you and like what you do for the works. Yeah. Well, I'm, so I'm an urban planner by training, as I mentioned. And my work in, at the works is specifically on the emergency rent assistance program. So I work on a team of four tenants' rights lawyers, and I am kind of the person who's between the tenants, who tenants who are facing eviction and applying to the program, who's between the attorneys who try to get representation for tenants in court, uh, and then between the government side of the program. So. Um, the people who support the emergency rent assistance program, uh, the grantees, and I can talk more about you know where these federal funds come from and what the emergency rent assistance program is. But my role, I'm the director of emergency rent assistance and housing policy at the works. So I'm kind of the liaison between the lawyers, the government, tenants, different nonprofit partners that we've worked with on the program. And it's a really fun role because there's no... Um, like every day is super different. I sometimes am talking to like yesterday, talking to landlords that are sharing their perspective with me and sometimes like shout at me and sometimes, <laughs> you know, have, and sometimes 10, you know, talk to tenants who also shout at me. Um, but also get to talk to people who get rent relief because of this program, get representation for their eviction case because of this program. And so I talk to people Who's all, who've also had their lives changed and have this be a really uplifting experience. Um, and so it's kind of fun to be that person who like goes between. So sometimes I'm with the lawyers, 
I go to general sessions to the courthouse sometimes. Um, sometimes I am more so meeting with these data engineers who have helped us make some really cool court data tools that I can talk about. Um, sometimes I'm on Zoom with like local politicians or we had the deputy secretary of the treasury come to Memphis. And so I got to meet him at the law school with all, all these partners in one big room. Um, so I, ha I get to kind of have a foot in different doors of local government and community service partners and tenants and people who apply for assistance. So, all right. So let's break mm -hmm. all that down that you were just <laughs> yeah, <saying>. yeah. <laughs> First of all, um, I'm sure you've been really busy as of lately because of COVID and like tenants and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. So actually how we got this spot, uh, it was a church and mm. this church, I think had this place or they weren't paying their rent, I think for, it, it was close to a year. And wow. we, we moved in in... Uh, I think it was October or September of 2021. Yeah. So um, I, I think it was like a, a, a pretty long period of time that they weren't paying the rent, but because of all the COVID laws and stuff yeah. like that, like they, they couldn't just kick them out, you know? So they ended up having to go to court and uh, they actually ended up not even showing up to the court thing and all that kind of stuff. But anyways, I'm sure you've wow. had to deal with yeah. stuff kind of like that. Yeah, totally. So they were tenants and they got evicted. Yeah, because and they weren't paying the rent for like a, a long period of time. Yeah. And you're, are you a tenant too? Yeah, you now we the, are. Yeah, the same owner that was previously. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting that they even were able to be evicted. It must have been around like March of this, of, of 20, or like it must have been around this time last year that they, the property turned over no, or it, no? Like it was when we had moved in, like they kicked them out, let us move in. In like, I think it was September of this this past September. Yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah. So that that makes sense because what I was thinking in the COVID timeline is locally we had an eviction moratorium until March of 2021, mm. and so I was thinking, okay, if they had an eviction, it would have to be after March. So you had to become a tenant here pretty recently. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we were actually the first part of the country that was. Um, where the eviction moratorium was declared unconstitutional. Mm. And that was March of this past, so like a year ago now. Um, and it was because of this group of West Tennessee landlord attorneys that banded together. And they got, you know, they took the case to the Tennessee Supreme Court and got the um, eviction moratorium declared unconstitutional for West Tennessee. So this was this time last year. Um, but before then... You know, eviction cases were very backlogged in Shelby County, and there was people were protected under the CDC moratorium, and then pre-CDC moratorium there was the federal moratorium. Um, so we went through kind of different eras of um, national moratoria, and then we also went through different eras of federal assistance funding. So mm -hmm. like. At the start of COVID, there was the CARES Act, which was like the first round of federal assistance funding for people, for community partners, for local government to be able to access uh, emergency funds, basically. So we started with CARES funding, and that's where the nonprofit uh, where I work first got involved. Okay. And then post-CARES funding, we had the emergency rent assistance, and I can talk more about what that means, but another round of federal funding and then immediately after the first ERA, Emergency Rent Assistance, we had the American Rescue Plan, ARPA, 
So we've gone through like these different eras of federal stimulus um, that have shaped, that have had very different local responses uh, and very different programs that build off of them. Um, And so it was really that first funding, the CARES Act funding, where the nonprofit where I work first got involved in um, eviction prevention work. Mm -hmm. And since we were involved from that start, now we were able to be involved with the emergency rent assistance planning here in Memphis and Shelby County. And now we have a role uh, as Memphis and Shelby County have received American Rescue Plan funds and more ERA funds. Um, Yeah, so that's kind of my long just ramble of where it started. So, I mean, I know you said, mm-hmm. so what'd you go to school for? You said you For urban planning. I got my master's in urban planning, urban planning. and I actually graduated in the middle of COVID, uh, May, 2020. So, so how much of this, like the stuff that you're currently doing, did you have, I guess, prior knowledge of by doing your schooling and everything? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, urban planning is a very, um, amorphous field like people some people do more urban design focused degrees Mm. so like some people know of urban planners as working with architects and urban designers and some urban planners do more housing policy or community development work like maybe they work at a community development corporation maybe they work in local government Uh, maybe they you know they have more of a foot in the policy side of the world um I went to a design school. I went to Harvard's Graduate School of Design, which is in an architecture school. Okay. And so, actually, it was much more... It had a a strong design focus. Like, I took studio classes where we had to make a lot of maps, and we had to design, you know, some... We had to do some 3D, like, renderings of buildings and that kind of stuff. But I also was really focused on housing and neighborhood development during Mm. my master in urban planning. And so, I took a lot more of the, like community development history, um, affordable housing, like how does affordable housing finance and development work? Uh, how does, what are different forms of local government, like funding for, um, you know, TIFs, like tax increment financing and what, like, what does local government and urban planning kind of look like together? Um, so I think I, that was a big part of my urban planning education, Mm -hmm. But I also, so my two focuses were housing and neighborhood development and urban design. So I also really loved learning how to do mapping. And I really loved like the more studio aspect. Like I worked with a community partner in studio and in studio you, it's more like creative problem solving. Um, And my studio project was actually with a team of middle school kids looking at how their public middle school was designed oh, and dang. like proposing. <laughs> it was, yeah, they were like proposing um, how it could be better designed yeah. and how what they would propose to the local city council and what basically what their vision would be for the school. So I really love that kind of like hands-on community design work, which is very different from doing like federal, um, you know, we at, at face value is very different from how do you effectively spend federal funds uh, in the middle of a pandemic. But I think my interest has always been more in like, what is the role of community partnerships in shaping these kind of programs? Like, how do you, like, what does it look like to have a really innovative partnership between tenants rights lawyers and local government and the tenants themselves? And we have worked with a refugee organization in Memphis, World Relief, We've worked with MIFA, uh, all kinds of like Birthworth Center, the Community Alliance for the Homeless. Like, what does it look like to create a really collaborative response to an eviction crisis? Mm. Um, 
in some ways that is very similar to like, what does it look like to involve youth and teachers in how they want their school to be redesigned? Like what is a really collaborative planning process look like? How do you center the ideas of the people who are most impacted by uh, a federal assistance program or the people who are most impacted by how their school was designed because they walk the streets to school every day and they go there every day. Um, so I think my training was in some ways a little more design focused than mm -hmm. maybe what I do on the day to day, but it still has that kind of roots in what a collaborative, you know, problem solving programs look like, uh, locally in your own neighborhoods, in your own city. Um, yeah. So when you're designing these things, is it something that you have to present and then explain like, Hey, we came up with this. This is why this will work. Yeah, that's a good question. I think with the emergency rent assistance program, when we were designing this program, there were a lot of partners at the table. So this this was in, I guess I'll back up to say in January, or really in December of 2020, that's when the federal, the treasury announced its emergency rent assistance allocations. Mm -hmm. And so in January, 2021 was our big planning phase. And so that was when there were all these local partners at the table, local government at the table. Um, the local government is the grantees of the program. So I should really emphasize like the Memphis city housing community development division and the Shelby County division of community services. Those are the grantees who this, Treasury, these treasury funds flow into the states and flow in. Well, really, they directly come to um, Memphis, to the city of Memphis, and to Shelby County government. Okay. And so, in January, we were really invited to be at the table and make, like, be a really big part of the planning process as community partners. And Paul Young and Dorcas Young Griffin are the local leaders that really invited our nonprofit to the table alongside MIFA, um, World Relief, other Memphis organizations. What is MIFA? MIFA is the Metropolitan or the Memphis Interfaith Association, or is it Metropolitan Interfaith Association? It's either Memphis or Metropolitan, but they do a range of services for people facing homelessness, such as like they do a rapid rehousing program where if you are homeless and you have children, uh, you can get placed in housing and they pay future rent for the next three months. Um, they do a lot of, they're, they're pretty well known for their food delivery services. So they do like meals on wheels and people can volunteer or uh, volunteer to deliver meals and sign up to get free meals delivered to their home. They just do a range of really impactful social service programs. Um, and who was some of the other partners? Like World Relief was another partner who is Memphis's local refugee resettlement group. So they okay. assist ref new refugees who are resettling in the Memphis area, provide them with resources, um, like help them get settled here, find educational opportunities, find jobs, economic opportunities. So I think it was really the city and county that brought all these groups to the table and mm -hmm. said, how do you all see, how would you want to shape this program? What are things we should consider? Uh, everything from what should the selection process be like of tenants who apply to what should the application look like to what does the processing look like? We They really started out 
in January wanting to make it a more collaborative process. So in January, it was less to your question of like, do you come up with ideas and then present them? Really, every week it was like a big Zoom meeting <laughs> where we would all sit around and like say, uh, okay, how do we structure this? And I remember Paul Young when he first, uh, he's now with the Downtown Memphis Commission, but at the time he was head of housing community development for the city of Memphis. And he would host these Zooms where he would say, okay, we know we need an application process. So doesn't who's going to be the committee of people who come up with that part, like who propose ideas, basically. We know we need to do good research on the outcomes of the program, who who will be that committee. He was very collaborative in mm. suggesting, you know, bring your ideas and talk together as a group. And so we would just meet every week on Zoom. Then we started meeting much more than every week because <laughs> then it was like all hands on deck uh, planning the program. But it was really there was a lot of just early brainstorming and the city and county are the ultimate decision makers of the program. Like Mm -hmm. they're the ones who would say, okay, you know, we've heard you all brainstorm. We've heard what potential ideas are. This is what we're going to do as the grantees. Um, But they were really good about seeking a collaborative process. And I think, you know, over the last uh, year and a third or so that we've done this program, I think we've all learned a lot of, in trying to be collaborative because Mm. there were moments where we as the community partner, I think there's the city and the county who are the grantees who make decisions. And then there are all the community partners that want to be at the table and say what their preferred way of doing things is. And Mm. we had to also learn a lot of give and take of, well, just because you have an idea as a community partner doesn't mean that that's how the program is going to operate or that you are the grantee that gets to make those decisions. Um, and so we have we've had a lot of like give and take and learning over the year how to best collaborate together and mm. how active community organizations can be as decision makers if we're not the ones who receive the federal funds and we're not the ones who report to the treasury on how they're spent. But I think um, a lot of credit is due to how the city and county wanted to set up the process to begin with to be a more collaborative program to include a lot of local partners at the table. Um, really just to set up a more like open, honest discussion from the start. That's pretty wild. Um, everything you're saying, number one, but the fact that there's all these agencies that are actually, um, call them alphabet agencies. (laughs) They got all the letters, Mm -hmm. but, um, that they have such a specific job and then it's part of a, a bigger job and, I would say most people don't know like what they're doing mm, or like yes. what, what what they're capable of doing. And to me, that is what, uh, in big scheme of things in America, mm. I think that is a lot of America's issues is we've got problems, but mm. there are people who are meant to fix those problems, but nobody knows about them. So they end up not being used the way that they should be used. Uh, mm. Do you feel that's the case around here or do you feel like that's it's not so much? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of people, I think there are a lot more people working on certain problems than people may realize. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot, like we're in this era of unprecedented funds now being poured in to local governments, yeah, yeah. Um, to, you know, people respond, 
community organizations who are doing pandemic response. I think like this is really an unprecedented time of people who are trying to resolve problems. I think in the past, you know, this there's not really a precedent for this moment in that historically a lot of local government has never had like these kind of funds helicoptered in. Yeah. So people had a lot of ideas for what it could look like, like, you know, what would be the dream scenario if suddenly you got all these funds and typically you're trying to like compete for all these funds mm. and suddenly these funds are really helicoptered in on city government. Is and it usually like a lump sum? Well, usually, like with the emergency rent assistance program, there was never a there was no predecessor to that program. So oh. there was no like there was no large federal aid given to uh, pay people's rental arrears. Like yeah. if you think of comparable programs, you may think of like housing vouchers, but housing vouchers don't pay your arrears. They pay the way they work is they pay um, up to thirty percent for of your rent on. 30% of your income can go mm. towards your rent and they pay that uh, to your landlord. Oh. So they work very differently than like emergency rent, which is just how much do you owe your landlord? We will pay that to your landlord and we can pay some future rent for you. And so there was no program really like that uh, pre-COVID. Yeah. And I think there... In, in a lot of ways, like these ARPA, the American Rescue Plan funds were totally new programs dropped on local government. And while local government had infrastructure for some programs, such as community development block grants and other you know, programs that have existed for a while, there was no real infrastructure for the kind of funds being dropped on local government. And a lot of local government really struggled to get the funds out the door uh, as a consequence. Mm. Um, so, for example, like we, from March to... Uh, early June, we gave out more funding in emergency rent assistance locally than the entire state of California did. Dang. Because people, <laughs> like state governments and local and municipal governments, really struggled to get funds out the door. Like they had to immediately put together an infrastructure to that didn't exist to yeah. get funds out. They had to hire all these people uh, in the middle of COVID. Um, they had to you know, build processing systems that didn't exist. Like how do you effectively distribute money and just cut checks for landlords and tenants? How do you report, how do you monitor who gets what because you have these onerous reporting requirements uh, back to the U.S. Treasury? And how do you know you're going to be within compliance? Mm. Um, and so it comes from like a long history of local governments never having that money, never having that kind of infrastructure set up. And it also comes from a history of local governments not, you know, having people tell them, oh, you're out of compliance for something uh, and we will recoup those funds from you makes a lot of local governments very hesitant to push money out the door because they say, oh, wait, the Treasury knocked on my door like the feds came knocking about another program. How do I know they're not going to come knocking about this program, like the, all these new pandemic response programs? And so a lot of local governments were very wary of, like, mm. if we push these funds out the door too quickly, will we not be within reporting requirements? Um, how do we, you know, how do we know that we're not going to get in trouble for spending this money? And it's so interesting because at the same time, the federal government was releasing various guidelines saying, spend more money, like, 
we're not going to come after you. We promise. But a lot of cities are like, how do, how do we trust that if you've come after us in the past for being out of compliance? Um, you know, and how do you, how do we trust that when we've never seen a program like this before? And we don't know what the end, you know, what the process for recouping these funds from us could look like. Yeah, that's that's something I thought about for medical wise. Like mm. you know, hospitals hadn't had to deal with COVID situations like that before, and and all these crazy things with you know even food crisis. You know, people like hey, stay indoors, but you can go get something to eat or something like that. Like those mm-hmm. situations we hadn't experienced before, but I never really thought about like all the people who needed money for certain stuff and help like that. Like the states weren't prepared, mm-hmm. and I was listening exactly. to a, um, I think it was a Joe Rogan podcast. Uh, he was like, "Yeah, I didn't realize how important the governor was until COVID, ah. <laughs> because it was like then, like that's when they actually showed their power and what they're actually capable of. Because governors were either shutting everything down, or mm. in the case of like Florida, they were opening everything up." When it didn't matter what the other governors were doing, it was like mm. it was like the, the it was almost like the president didn't matter, and the governors were truly running the U.S. Yeah, suddenly like state government was a really big thing, yeah. and they would determine you know cities themselves, local governments also would determine oh, yeah. who was gonna like what their local mandates are, mask mandates, how people can come, fly in, you know what the quarantine requirements are. It's all like you actually start to see the kind of authority people have. And I think in some ways people never even, there were some agencies that didn't have the authority until suddenly uh, COVID because there were so many new federal funding programs rolled out that suddenly gave them a lot more power that they hadn't had before. um, Where suddenly they're looked to as the big agency to roll out, you know, millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. I look at people like Fauci, like mm-hmm. they know who that guy was yeah. <laughs> until COVID. Now he's like the end all be all yeah. of like, Hey, what do we do? Yeah. So exactly. I'm, I'm sure there were a tons of different agencies out there and companies yeah. who were like, Oh, now we're important. <laughs> Y'all didn't want to pay attention to us now, but now that you need help, now we're important. Yeah. But, suddenly we have relevance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. It's like that, but you know, like they say, um, you, you don't truly learn a good lesson until something bad happens. And then, you know, then you're like, oh, that's why we do this. And that's why we do that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it happened all over the place. Um, mm-hmm. do, you, do you feel like Memphis was able to handle the situation fairly mm-hmm. well? or? Yeah, I mean, we have been viewed, there have been many case studies on how we set up our emergency rent assistance program. Uh, and the deputy secretary of the treasury came to visit Memphis to spotlight how our program ran and to give you uh, an idea, like some benchmarks of how successful the program has been. Uh, as I mentioned, like the state of California spending, you know, we spent more than the whole state of California had spent by May, but that's the case of a lot of local governments. And in fact, um, many Local governments and state governments have had their ERA funds revoked because they Mm. didn't spend enough of them, whereas we keep getting more and more ERA funds. And now in total, we have over, we have 138 million to spend in emergency rent assistance funds. So our first allocation was 30 million and we spent all of that and we spent over 50 million now. And so 
if you think about that, like, so we started out with 30 million, we spent over 50 million because we got a second ERA allocation where people were like, wow, we're going to get now 60 million. Then we got ARPA emergency or sorry, American rescue plan funds. And now we start getting these ERA reallocations from states. Like for example, the state of Georgia has really struggled to get funds out the door Mm. and the treasury has recouped some of their funds and they then send them to municipalities and ERA programs that are really good at getting the funds out the door. So it's kind of because we built an early infrastructure, we have now been able to get, you know, over $130 million of funding that gets channeled to Memphis uh, because we were really quick to build something from the start. And places that really struggled to get effective programs up and running, unfortunately, get punished for that. And it's, Mm. you know, it's sad because... The state of Georgia also, like, people need rent assistance there. And so the fact that their program couldn't get up and running fast enough is not, shouldn't ultimately punish tenants and landlords there. Um, But it's an interesting, you know, this reallocation idea is really useful if you are a municipality that says, like, hey, we're going to put our hands up as being a place that can use more money. Like, if you send it to us, we will get it out the door. Um, and you know, we've have assisted over 15,000 households in Memphis and Shelby County through it, gotten over 50 million, have to look at our updated funds, but, uh, we are now, you know, cooking with gas, able to get a lot of funds out the door. And a big part of our program that many programs don't have is our eviction diversion component. Mm. So we have... Um, tenant attorneys who go to general sessions in Memphis and Shelby County. So in Shelby County, some cities have like housing court in Shelby County. All of housing court is general sessions. Uh, So it's just like general civil court. And we have um, tenant attorneys who are there for Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays. And that's when eviction hearings are heard in general sessions. Oh, okay. And they go and they stand up for tenants who have applied for emergency rent assistance. And they request two weeks. Uh, I can get in the weeds of what all they request. But generally, uh, the broader picture is we have for every tenant who applies for emergency rent assistance and who is facing eviction, so who has some kind of court eviction, we have a tenant attorney who will be able to represent that tenant in some way. Mm. And they will reach out to that tenant's landlord's attorney and they will say, we are prepared to pay uh, all their past due back rent of up to 12 months. So the treasury guidelines say we can pay anybody's back rent up to 12 months following COVID. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the date of the pandemic, which was like March 16th, 2020 or whatever the national date is. We can pay 12 months of past due rent and one month of future assistance. And so we will, our tenant attorneys will reach out to those landlord attorneys and say, you know, we are prepared to make a payment and here's how much we will pay. In return, we ask the landlord to agree to certain tenant protections. So the landlord agrees that they are going to first drop the case against the tenant. So they're going to drop that eviction filing or eviction judgment. Um, second, they agree they'll let the tenant stay in the property for 45 days uh, without filing a new eviction. And they can only file a new eviction after those 45 days if the tenant gets behind on their rent again. Mm. Um, they agree to waive any late fees and legal fees the tenant has previously owed them. So they bring their balance to zero. Uh, what else? They agree to negotiate a new lease with the tenant if the tenant you know, 
makes their payments following the uh, assistance provided. So we have a really robust like tenant protection side of the program, and it's it's unique how it's been integrated with local courts because many ERA programs um, they may you know they may want to add tenant protections such as they say okay if a landlord agrees to accept money the way the program works is we we offer to pay the landlord first what the tenant owes so many programs are set up to say hey if you accept money then you have to you know you can't evict your tenant within 45 days or 60 days mm. but it's very rare that programs are so integrated with the court system like that have full time ERA emergency rent assistance attorneys who are representing tenants who are at the courthouse who are actually reaching out to that landlord attorney and saying do you agree to drop the eviction like judgment against the tenant or drop the eviction filing against the tenant a lot of programs are set up to say do you agree to these protections but they don't actually work directly with landlord attorneys uh, like our program does so it's pretty innovative how we have tenant attorneys who are talking directly with landlord attorneys and then the other thing that has made our program, like one of the biggest reasons our program has been able to get money out the door is we do this thing called bulk settlements where we settle um, many cases at once. Mm. So one of our biggest bulk settlements covered about a thousand tenants and sometimes they're smaller. Sometimes they cover like five or six, but they can cover like more often they cover 30 to 40 or as many as a thousand. Okay. And the way it works is we work specifically with landlord attorneys um, throughout Memphis who represent a lot of properties. So in Memphis, there are like really five or six landlord attorneys who are going to be representing the vast majority of cases here. And we have relationships with all of them. And we are able to say to them, here are your clients. Like, for example, one of the landlord attorneys we work the most closely with we know all of his clients and we then say, okay, here are all the tenants who are behind for your clients. Mm -hmm. Will you accept assistance for all of these tenants at once? And we give him one payment and then he goes and disperses that payment to his different clients. Mm -hmm. So we say, okay, you're the landlord attorney who represents the majority of cases in Shelby County. Here are all of like under your clients that are all these properties across Memphis. Here are all of their tenants who have applied for assistance. Will you accept one payment? Will you accept a payment at once? And that lets us give, you know, millions and millions more quickly because we can process one payment yeah. instead of like jumping through hoops and trying to process one payment per person. That's that's a very extensive yeah. <laughs> process. That's yeah, pretty wild. I get in the weeds of it uh, really quickly, but but it's pretty you know it's pretty straightforward that it's just like if you think about the way landlords are set up and property management companies are set up, mm. they're it's they're more often uh, like more of the tenants you meet will be under one larger management company, and there's yeah. one person who needs that rent payment. Um, it's less often smaller landlords. And so that lets us assist a lot more people at once by building those kind of relationships with the landlord attorney who's representing that big property management group. Hmm. So do you feel like that process has been streamlined or is, is it, does it need some help? Does, does it need to be broken down even more? Yeah, well, a big way that it's been streamlined is through these court data tools that we have built over the past year. Okay. So is we, that just sheer 
new technology or is that just like, oh, somebody thought of a new way? Yeah, it's kind of new. Somebody like thought of a new way. Um, And it's also like having the right heads in the room. So we have a couple of data engineers who we work really closely with. And one of them in his day job actually um, does the data work behind that, that runs eviction lab. Mm. So eviction lab is kind of like this national resource for what um, eviction filings look like locally. Uh, you can like on eviction lab, you can look at a map of the U S and you can click on a County and you can see how eviction, what the eviction filing trends have been over the last month is really, yeah, <laughs> it's really cool. Um, and we are really lucky to have somebody who in their day job does amazing eviction data work and really knows the ins and out of public court data. And um, he's then a freelancer with us, not in his day job. And so he is able to really help us um, pull public records, like pull that public court data, and then take our ERA data and say, okay, who's applied for the ERA, who is in the public record, and who has an eviction upcoming. Mm. And then let's triage by whose case date is the soonest. Let's sort by who's, uh, who's under which landlord attorney. Um, and all of this kind of data work is able to really help us figure out, okay, how do we tell that landlord attorney, hey, here are all your tenants in the system? Because it would, in many cases, it would be very difficult to find out, okay, like we have over 30,000 tenants in the ERA system locally here in Memphis and Shelby County. Mm -hmm. How do you look at 30,000 tenants and say, okay, which of you are under which clients and which of those clients are supported by which or have hired which landlord attorneys? And so he's able to like really quickly pull that court data, which includes the plaintiff attorney in the court data. So the court data will tell you who's the landlord attorney. So you can sort and see, okay, here's everybody. Here's everyone who's in a court, who has an upcoming court date and who's in our ERA system, match them together and say like, who do we need to reach out to their landlord attorney first who has Mm. an upcoming eviction? Whose cases can we bundle into a big bulk settlement? Um, And so I'm kind of, I'm sometimes the middle person between like the data engineer and the tenant attorney saying, okay, the tenant attorneys need this kind of data. I'm going to strategize with the data engineer and figure out, okay, what can we, you know, what can we use as the proxy to figure out who has an upcoming case? And so I, I kind of have a foot between each door, I guess, or mm. can be sort of the translator role. Like, okay, the tenant attorneys need a way to better automate their, uh, like I, I know the ins and outs of the really tedious manual work they do. And then I know how some, you know, have some basic understanding of how the data uh, is pulled. So then I can figure out, okay, how do we automate some of these more manual processes that take so long? And how do I kind of translate what the tenant rights lawyers need with data engineer speak um, and what, what the data engineer can do? So... I mean, I just think the tools that we have created have really changed the nature of how we're able to help uh, tenants who apply for the program. Like every week, we have these tenant attorneys who are in court, and they have their list of everybody who's applied for ERA assistance who's in court that week. And they, on their, we're able to give them a list that even says, like, here's the courtroom that tenant who applied for assistance is going to be in. Here's the judge they're going to see. Here's the time you need to be there. Um, 
So it allows for better assistance. But the other thing we've been able to do is really democratize that data and give it to the tenants who have upcoming courts or okay. like upcoming hearings. Yeah. So we text the tenants with a link to their court record saying, Hey, here's where you need to be. Here's the judge, you know, here's the, here's the specific courtroom you're going to be in. And here's the time to show up. Don't screw this up. <laughs> yeah. We're saying get there. Like make sure you're, you, yeah, make sure you arrive. Yeah. Um, and we do the same with email. We email people, all these this information about what to expect in court, what the judge is going to say, what the judge will ask them, what they should respond, um, or how they should respond rather. So I think, you know, the data doesn't just help people who are trying to better triage and like better support tenants, but it actually really helps tenants when you come up with ways to give it to them, whether it's through text, <coughs> email. Uh, no, no, you get. <laughs> Uh, we we mail a ton of postcards, like we mail a shit ton of postcards, like thousands of postcards a month to every tenant who has a filing in Memphis and Shelby County. We send them a postcard saying, here is, like, you have an upcoming eviction, like public court records indicate you have an upcoming case. Here is a QR code and the link to go apply for assistance. Mm. Um, here's, you know, what you need to know to find local legal services. And so... We try to tell as many people as possible. So you're making first contact. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. So we try to tell tenants about it. And then once they get in the system, we try to give them information about their hearing. Like now that, because the way public records work is public records have people's addresses. Mm -hmm. So we can send anybody a postcard, but public records don't have people's cell phone or like email. Yeah. So I saw, like I saw something on Instagram today being like, why hasn't the government figured out a way to like text everybody their tax return, you know, their, their IRS info and like mm. email people stuff, but that's not publicly accessible data. Yeah. Like that and if, data. And if they were doing other stuff like that, you'd be like, why are they texting? Yeah. Why are <laughs> they, they get my yeah. number? <laughs> Who gave that out? Yeah. yeah. What company sold that to them? Cause yeah. you know, so everything is we have to start by mailing people yeah. so we start with postcards but then once people apply to the program if they're one of those 30,000 people in the local in in the program system then we have their numbers we have their emails we can start saying hey public records show you have a case here's a link to your record mm. we're going to personally you know hound you all the time with information about your upcoming case um yeah, so it really lets us like have that kind of two-way street with the tenant and say, here's everything you need to know. So all of that seems like something that it should be, I guess, I guess put up to a situation to where you kind of have to think about, you know, where, where are we at and where mm -hmm. do we, what do we do next? You mm -hmm. know, like all these things are working fine, but like. What's what's next for the future and, and contact people like you were talking about, like the text message emails. You know, they didn't have that, you know, 40 years ago. Like people weren't mm -hmm. uh, emailing and texting people all the time. So, you know, the advancements have probably been drastic over, I would say, a short period of time. Um, how how are you able to handle that? Like, mm. do you have to just figure out like what's, 
you know, what's the new thing that we're able to do? Mm. I mean, do you have to just, yeah. Like, All right, we can do this. So let's, let's roll this out. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the main thing we have to do is break down silos between all these different industries that know different tech innovations going on or mm. know other ways of doing things. Um, because it's really hard to, you know, if you are the local government trying to figure out how to send tenants information about their upcoming court case, it's not that common that you have people on your team who can set up, who can run a script with a, um, with, that connects to a texting platform that will text all those tenants that will also pull data in from public records. Mm. Like oftentimes those people are at tech companies or maybe they're pulling the data for eviction lab or, you know, they are not as often in local government, Yeah, which is a, you know, which is, a, I, I think really sad. Like I wish more people, uh, like, you know, working at big tech companies is so appealing to people like go to Twitter and Facebook and, you know, all these m companies that'll pay people a lot more. You'll have super flexible hours. Yeah. But if we could break down the silos, like the kind of ideas that occur in those companies with the needs of local government, with the needs of community development corporations and on the ground partners, I mean, I think we can untap a totally new level of problem solving. And like one example of that in our work has been we um, has been this partnership we've had with this group called U.S. Digital Response, which is an organization that was founded during COVID, and it was founded by these tech leaders um, who wanted to basically, you know, who had who had time and money and skills and wanted to provide their skills for free to different government providers and different community service groups that were responding to crisis. And so we got paired with a couple of these leaders at U.S. Digital Response who were able to introduce us to these tools we didn't even know existed. Mm. Um, and these, you know, we had someone who was one of the early founders of Dropbox who was oh, helping us, like, learn how to automate processes on our end, like just really sharing that knowledge. And I think having people who can be those early translators, like I myself, not a data expert or like, you know, did not go to college and learn how to code yeah. um, for better or for worse. Sometimes I wish I had more of those skills, but I got to learn from someone who had these amazing skills and said, okay, Here's how you could, here's some different tools you as an organization could use. Mm. Uh, for example, Airtable is this great tool that's kind of like a next generation version of Google Drive. Um, oh, okay. It's a really awesome, it's just a really awesome, easy to integrate, no code like software basically mm. that you can use as like a standard CRM. Like you can, you can, it's just a really great platform. I didn't know it existed or how it could be used and got to learn about that kind of tool, got to learn about other like no code tools that now we use every day. Like we use Airtable every day. That's what pulls in um, court data with ERA data. That's how we find out about upcoming cases. Like that's how we automate. We run a script through it that texts tenants. And I didn't know about any of those things. And I think it, it gets hard when we all work like when community development groups work in silos away mm. from uh, local government that has the funding to be able to make 
a lot of these projects possible, but maybe they don't always have the kinds of local partnerships or the relationships with tenant rights attorneys or with landlord attorneys or the relationships with landlords to, um, to be able to run the most effective kind of program. And I think like silo busting is really what COVID has taught us works or what more collaborative programs have taught us work. Like if you can get people around the table who know how to code with people around the table who have deep community relationships with people around the table who have federal funds coming in and want to know how to channel it and how to develop a really effective program, you can do so much more than when we're all like trying to resolve it alone in our own agency. Um, Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the problem with, uh, I would say, you know, organizations like yours is that you usually don't know what's out there. You know, you're, you're just kind of grabbing at straws trying to like, Oh, Oh, that's a thing. Like, Oh, we can, (laughs) we can do that. And so I don't know. It's, it's pretty interesting hearing that, you know, you're discovering these things and you're finding these things out because that's really what, you know, uh, any kind of assistance or, or government assistance type programs, that's what they need is for these outside companies to give them a helping hand and not, you know, hog all the good people mm-hmm. who, who have all the skills that they need. It's it's kind of, I guess it's kind of odd that, you know, we don't have like a tech, um, what, like a tech entity of the government. Yeah. I, I guess some people would be like, oh no, we got a tech entity of the government. <laughs> yeah. But that would be helpful. Yeah, we actually, the government has like a U.S. digital services department or some kind of. News to me. (laughs) There are some groups like that, but they, you know, they aren't like, they don't operate like a major tech company does Mm -hmm. where they provide like um, case management software to different government programs or they don't, you know, they, they're pretty limited. I mean, I, I truly don't know what, you know, they don't compete like these big tech companies really run. Like they are the people that run a lot of government programs and a lot of government programs all contract with some major um, tech companies Mm. that set up the program and that really shape how the application process looks, how eligibility requirements look, how, you know, how a program gets implemented. Um, I think these, yeah, big tech companies have a much bigger role than a lot of people realize. Um, so on the ERA, there are like five major emergency rent assistance softwares that have come up and they channel, they receive personally and channel millions of dollars in ERA assistance. Um, but similar on other programs, like on other types of federal funding programs, there are, there are like a set group of the major software providers that have been set up to really implement programs. And I think... Ideally, you have people who are the middlemen also between those kind of programs that make money off of off of federal assistance programs and the grantees that pick up that, you know, buy those programs. Mm-hmm. You have somebody in between them that says, OK, um, how do we make sure that that this program is also customizable and include, you know, takes into consideration user needs and how do we kind of be that translator? Um yeah, I just think that there's a there's a really big th- these tech companies just play a much bigger role in a lot of in a in a lot of government assistance programs, like bigger than we realize. Yeah, like school is a big one to me, just mm-hmm. like helping kids 
um, learn and even from, you know, I guess middle school all through high school and even through college. Like I, I think there should be like, I'm saying this like tech mm. entity of the government there, there should be like a funnel for, um, I guess young people to learn these types of skills specifically, like mm. you want mm-hmm. to work in government to help data science and like, yeah, like I know that is what college is for. Like you just go and you learn a degree. Like you got your degree in mm-hmm. uh, the urban design or what mm-hmm. was it? yeah, urban right? planning, urban yeah. planning. Mm-hmm. So um, that still that sounds kind of specific, but still like that's not a a specific job. Like yeah, I want to I want to be like so specific. That the person has like somebody they can talk to mm. like while they're in college to learn uh, what they're going to be doing mm-hmm. and, and all that kind of stuff. Because so that's actually I, I work at Owens Corning in in cool. Memphis, the shingle manufacturer. Yeah. So um, I went to Rockwell Automation. They taught me how to do uh, PLC programming, and that's where I learned mm. that. But yeah. like. While we're there, so it's like the program was for veterans, military veterans. Mm. So we're all there. And mm-hmm. I think it was a 12-week program. And on week four, I think, is when companies came to uh, do interviews. Mm. So wow. We, yeah. So that soon. So it's super hands-on from the... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the companies come and they do their interviews and whatnot. And, um, and then... Um, what happens after that? Oh, we, we have like follow-up interviews mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. But that is something that should be done on a more, a bigger scale where yeah. we are training people to learn how to do something mm-hmm. very specific. And we've already got the jobs lined up. It's like, hey, you are learning this and you're going to yeah. Hattiesburg, Missouri mm-hmm. And working for this company, like mm-hmm. th- that kind of stuff. Number one, I can tell you right now, if we had something like that, a ton of kids would sign up for it because, not because I think it's such a great program, but because kids love when people make decisions for them that they that it's already mm-hmm. laid out. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like I don't they think can kids see the practical application yes. of it. Like they don't like for people to tell them what to do, but they like when it makes sense and they can see what's going on mm-hmm. when kids can't see what's going on. Like I was saying kid, but you know, 18, 19, yeah, yeah. however year old, when they can't see like where it's going, they're like, nah, that's not for me. <laughs> yeah. They're so, like, why did someone sign me up to do this thing that I don't know the outcome of? Exactly. And that's where what is college this gonna is going to lead. <laughs> yeah. College. If you like, you are free to spend as much money as you want to in college <laughs> and do nothing with it. That's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, it should be set up for success. I've, I'm not saying college is set up for failure. No. I'm, but mm-hmm. it should be set up more to where it's more guaranteed. Like, the, the percentage of if I graduate, I know I'm going to do this. Yeah. I think it could be set up. Yeah, like working more in partnership with community organizations to see how what you're learning applies to what their needs might be working more. Like I know the U of M's urban planning program has a very strong urban fellows program where people get paired with 
different with like housing community development division. We have somebody, Jasmine Bowden paired with the works who does an awesome job. Who's currently an urban planning student and she's getting this like hands-on experience. And every month she facilitates, um, these amazing, you know, these big convenings we have with different community partners. And she has really almost been full time working with us. I think, um, I mean, I completely agree there, there needs that kind of hands-on experiences needed, especially in fields like urban planning that are all about community partnerships, uh, getting, you know, not just learning like the theories of planning, but getting more hands-on experience. Something you said <laughs> mm-hmm. made me like, really think that that would be a good thing is um, you said that it, it meets their needs. Like when you go to college, you're meeting your own wants because yeah. that's something you want to do. It has nothing to do with what the world needs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's your choice to just pick whatever you want to do. So that's that's something that uh, that program that I went through, yeah, they created to meet the needs of mm-hmm. the companies because Rockwell, they like Rockwell makes PLCs and uh, drives and all these electrical components that companies need. To run, cool. like they need these things in manufacturing to run their lines and and make things. Mm-hmm. So they were like, oh, because so most people who know what I know are like fifty years old and they're retiring. They've been doing it for <laughs> 30, 40 years. They're all engineers and they're now retiring. Yeah. So Rockwell was like, oh crap, we got to teach. We, yeah, we got to teach people that know what these people know. So that they'll keep yeah. buying our stuff <laughs> yeah. and, and, and keep business up. So that's something that it's unbelievable to me that that's what college isn't geared toward. Is yeah. oh, we need people who um, help design recycling things or or uh, waste energy that kind of stuff. You know, like if we need it, create it, and yeah. then people will learn it. I promise you. Yeah, I kind of feel like I think my idea would be a little bit of both. Like I think. At the same time, college is so, it's freeing when yeah. you're like, you know, a kid, you're, yeah. you're older <laughs> than a kid, but you are able to like take classes that have absolutely nothing to do with what you're going to end up doing. And you learn the history of American labor or you take like amazing lit classes and you like debate marks and it has nothing to do with your um, day-to-day work. And I think it, Ideally for me, there would be some balance where yeah. like you do have time to like debate Marxist theory and be like a protesting college student, not to say that in like a pejorative way or like that experience doesn't matter. But like, I think those are also like amazing cornerstones of youth, like learning, taking your first uh, like political and social theory courses and like taking totally irrelevant literature classes that teach you, you know, that just like teach you things or expose you to different ways of thought. Like, I think those are super valuable. And at the same time, I totally agree that though, like you don't, I mean, my undergraduate degree was called political and social thought. So maybe I'm personally (laughs) impacted, you know, implicated in this conversation, but I'm totally biased, but I also like loved taking totally pointless classes. And at the same time I got out the end of it and I was like, Oh, Nobody told me that <laughs> this would have no real world application and nobody is interested in hearing my, you know, Marxist theories that I have 
Uh, but so, I mean, I, I just, I agree. And I wish it could be a little bit of both. Like I yeah. wish people could also like have the, it's such a luxury to have college, to have college as a time where you have no pressure to make something out of it. And yeah. you get to like really be exposed to weird theories that you're never going to think on in the rest of your life. And you get yeah. to like read great books and debate about it. And I like, I wish it was that too. And was like, okay. And like, maybe that's part of your coursework and a big part of your coursework is also, you know, here's an apprenticeship where you, you know, you want to be an architect, you get your, you learn alongside an architect, like you practice or you want to do construction work. Like you get out there and get the on the ground experience. You want to do like more, you know, data for good projects. You're actually paired with the local government or with, I mean, a community partner that would benefit enormously from, you know, basic coding that a college freshman could bring them also. Like I think, Ideally, it could be a little bit of both yeah. um, so that you don't lose, like, the luxurious world of liberal arts education. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that, that's not it, you know. That's not the focus. And I, and I think people who are working in the field make the best instructors or facilitators. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because you know, if you're a teacher and a professor, no offense to any of them, but you're stuck in a classroom. Absolutely. You're not out in the real world doing these things. But the people who are, are the ones who are actually going through these day-to-day mm-hmm. experiences. And they know what needs to get done or what isn't being done and, and how to fix those problems. Yes, yes, absolutely. My like most formative class I ever took that has shaped my career was in, in college. I took a class that was really based in a local housing development. And it was a housing development in Charlottesville uh, that was a Section 8 development. So it was one of those 1970s um, assist developments that's very low income. And it was undergoing this huge redevelopment process. And it was very contentious because this had been an area that, like, I went to the University of Virginia for undergrad. And all around that housing development, um, you know, student student housing had made rents skyrocket. And a mm. lot of people were concerned about displacement and didn't trust students and were like, why are UVA students involved um, at all? And... For me, it was the best class I ever took because I got to every week be in a housing development. I went to the community center of this housing development every week. And the point of our class was to meet with this team of resident youth leaders who were all paid for their time. It was like their first jobs. A lot of them were in high school and they were like late middle school, mostly high school. And they were hired to contribute to what they wanted the redesign of their housing to look like. And so we had um, the one of the property managers who worked with who worked at the development every day was also there like working with the kids teaching us alongside our urban planning professor mm. uh, we had somebody who's this amazing um, community design architect Liz Ogbu who was also there alongside my urban planning professor Barbara Brown Wilson like they were you know sh- she was there as the more hands-on experienced pracademic and then we also had the actual Practic community dinner. partner. Like yeah, we had like the you know community partner who worked in the housing development, and then the kids were the main teachers. Like they lived in the development. A lot of them, you know, were born and raised there and lived there their whole lives, and would have 
very firm opinions on what the redesign process should look like, what the redevelopment should look like, you know, what they wanted to communicate to the property management group. And it was like, for me, it was the best class I ever took because it was, what does it really mean to learn not just from people in the field, like an experienced architect and an experienced urban planner, but what does it also mean to learn from residents of housing developments who mm-hmm. have who can also be your teachers? What does it mean to learn from youth who can also like teach you a lot about what you don't know about the world? And to be able to take that class, like that class definitely shaped my career, especially because of its practical application way more than like my social theory class ended up, you know, shaping my career. Um, and I just loved it. And I, you know, maintained those relationships with some of those youth leaders still. Like I stayed working in the housing development the next year through the end of my college after I took that, I took that class in junior year and stayed working the housing development senior year, um, traveled with the youth leaders, like on a trip to DC to just stayed, you know, we still Facebook message each other now years later. Um, and I think that like, I, I totally wish there were more opportunities for people in college to get those kind of on the ground experiences learn from community partners, um, a, a range of community partners. Cause I think it just shapes how you see your skills, like applying in the real world. Is it mm-hmm. possible to, uh, take other cities and, and take what they're doing and, mm-hmm. and model it? Or is that too much of a, of a hassle because of, you know, every, every city is different. You know, you can't, you really can't just take, you know, oh, what's Los Angeles doing? All right, cool. Yeah, we'll yeah. just do the same thing. No, that's a great question because that really gets at, like, also what is the point of studying other cities yeah, instead yeah. of just learning what works in your own city? Um, absolutely, you can learn what works in other cities. And I think, like, probably there's just one thing I want to emphasize about that is it really helps to look at cities that are kind of counterparts to your city instead okay. of like what's working in Nashville. We're in the same state. Nashville's a big city. Memphis is a big city. Let's study what works in Nashville and try it in Memphis. Nashville is so different from mm-hmm. Memphis. Like yeah. Nashville has property prices nothing like Memphis. <laughs> like people, you know, I see people who are like Swedish influencers who moved to Nashville, not that they should, you know, they should be moving to Memphis, of course, not no knock on Memphis, but we're just very different cities. Yeah. But if you think about cities that are similar to Memphis in terms of like high vacancy rates, like Memphis has a urban sprawl, like Memphis has um, a lot of properties that have been in the County land bank, like Memphis has, I could get in the weeds of that, what mm. that is. But you could think of comparable cities being like Detroit, St. Louis, New Orleans, like what, what has worked in those cities, uh, as opposed to like what works in Nashville, what works in New York, like that New York is not really a city that will have like similar planning agendas to to Memphis. (laughs) Like, no, yeah, they have their own urban planning in New York is like truly its own thing. Um, but you know, a Boston and a Memphis, like, are going to be totally different at the same time. I think there are a lot of really interesting, like historical planning precedents. Uh, like Boston is really the hub of a lot of the early affordable housing movements mm-hmm. in the U S and like some of the oldest community development corporations in the U S 
are in Boston and started in Boston in the post-urban renewal era. Uh, and so we can really learn a lot about that, even though we're different in Memphis, because our CDC started later in the yeah. 90s. Um, and so, you know, it's a very different kind of community development history. But if we want to talk about like what works now, you can also look at some urban plans in for neighborhoods in Detroit that are similar to neighborhoods in Memphis in terms of like, well, this neighborhood has a lot of properties that have been vacant and that have been tax delinquent. Mm. Um, and how do we bundle some properties together or how do we put these properties in the hands of an affordable developer instead of leaving these properties to be grabbed by out of town real estate investors who sit on them. Um, And I think there's in that world, like there's so much we can learn from our, from learning about what works in other cities, even cities that are different from Memphis, like LA has a lot of the same sprawl as Memphis and has some really interesting precedent of like adopt a lot programs, for example, where there have been vacant uh, swaths of land that Mm. they then the city lent to a community organization that then put like a pocket park on it or something because it was currently owned by the city, but they, it was vacant and they needed something. Um, They wanted some kind of community envision plan for it. So yeah, just to say, I think there's a lot we can learn but it depends on who you know who we're learning from and how much it really applies to what happens here. I think, like when I left Memphis, people were always like, "Oh, you're from Memphis? I've been to Nashville. Nashville's awesome." <laughs> and I was like, "What the? You haven't been? That's nothing like Memphis." Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. It's like I'm glad that you have made your way to Tennessee, but <laughs> like that's not the same. Like you went to a bachelor party in Nashville. It's not yeah. the same. Um, and I think. I think there's a lot more when people know the history of like New Orleans or like St. Louis. Like there's actually a lot more parallels there um, than Nashville. So So. um, also on top of that, the meeting the needs of um, people in the area, like Mm. um, I would say like different cultures and stuff like that. So, you know, we were talking about, I would say Memphis is majority like black and white Mm -hmm. people. It's, it's got, way smaller percentages of other races, but like somewhere like New York, like I, yeah. I went to go meet a friend, uh, Jarrell's up in New York and he's Dominican and we stayed mm. in Washington Heights is, is literally like a city inside of that where it's just Dominican people. Yeah. That's it. You go down the streets, nothing but Dominican people, yeah. the stores, everything, but right. it's still New York. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's still a part of that. So do you feel like, you know, that that's something that uh, other places have to tackle? Like, mm. I mean, as I said, Memphis is mainly just black and white people and then smaller percentages of other races. But you still got to meet the needs of, of different yeah. kinds of people. They, they might yeah. want different things. Yeah. I mean, I think it's total. I mean, I think New York is just a beautiful city and it's yeah. so awesome. How Big these, melting pot. Yeah. And these cultural enclaves really do exist. And L.A. is similar. Like L.A.'s. You know, people will think of L.A. and be like, oh, it's all TikTok influencers. Like, it's so bougie. But L.A. has these, like, amazing, you know, Latinx neighborhoods where everybody's speaking Spanish, huge Latin markets, um, just, like, really rich local cultures and distinct neighborhood identities. And I think Memphis has that. Like, Memphis, you know, has very strong cultural enclaves, like, 
there is, you know, there is a strong Vietnamese community in Memphis that's around, um, like near Crosstown in the Washington Bottoms area is what it's called. Uh, it's what the being, neighborhood's called. I heard mm-hmm. being Hampton is like one of the most like diverse places for the amount of people. Hmm. Or something really? Like that. Yeah. Like I, per I think capita. Being, yeah. Yeah. I think it's being Hampton or some somewhere, but um, I, I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I mean, it's definitely a different kind of city in terms of cultural enclaves. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, sometimes cultural enclaves also reflect, like, segregation, how yeah, there yeah. are, like, majority white neighborhoods very present in Memphis that are not diverse. Yeah. Um, and I think there's, like, strong lines in Memphis that are the result of redlining, uh, where you can see historically how a specific neighborhood has been disinvested and mm-hmm. now like here is it continues to be low income today. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, you know, targeted or like neighborhoods that were targeted for predatory lending in the 08 crisis uh, that are majority black neighborhoods that were racially targeted and discriminated against for predatory lending. And you can see how they um, remain poor today and like the 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 income of that or the outcomes of that um so i think you know for better or for worse like you there's definitely neighborhoods that have kept that really strong cultural identity um but it is super different than in new york and in (laughs) like a a city where there's the like the density of um neighborhoods that where everyone's speaking Spanish and everybody like can walk down the street and go in shops that are Dominican shops and um, like Hasidic Jewish communities in Brooklyn where everybody, it's a very dense, like close community. It's not, Mm -hmm. um, it's not anything you see in Memphis or you see in St. Louis or, you know, it's very, very different. Absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's inevitable, you know, in, in bigger cities, you've got the more, cultural places and you can see like to me mm. it's all about how people like to live mm. like when you're in certain areas people want to live a certain way like i'll um i'll talk to one of my friends um and they'll be like oh man i got i gotta live in the city you know i gotta be with the hustle and bustle and stuff like yeah. that and then there's other people who are like no i want to live in the country you know i want to live where i can barely see my neighbors and that kind of yeah, stuff yeah yeah so, uh, meeting those needs of certain people, you know, you might be working with people with their the housing, and they'd be like, "Well, I I actually like this area." You know, it was like, "Hey, we're trying to help you, you know, get a place here." I'm like, I don't even like that. Like, place. I don't want. Yeah, <laughs> I have real preferences. Yeah, I think totally. Like, I think people have very real and different prefer- preferences. And then I also think it's also how the places were designed that sometimes reflect the kind of life. Yeah. yeah. Or, like, the kind of neighborhoods that can be there. So, like, Memphis in the 80s and 90s kept sprawling. And that was really Memphis's plan was to, you know, you start at the river and then you sprawl eastward for forever. Mm. And there's a result of that. Like, some people do enjoy living in more spread out or, like, living far out east and having a lot of land. But it also meant that there was a disinvestment in Memphis's core neighborhoods. Mm. And there were a lot of, you know, a lot of vacant properties and, and the city kept on like reaching out instead of investing in. Uh, and so then you see, you know, maybe you also know a lot of people who are like, like I I know a lot of people I work with said a happy hour where people were like, 
I would never, like, I would never want to live in New York. I love having my own car. I love driving around. Like, I have so much space here. So I think people do develop real preferences, but also the way the city is designed force you. Like, if you didn't want to drive around everywhere and you didn't want so much space, like, if you're a Memphian, you don't have another choice other than to leave. Yeah. uh, Because there's not good, you know, there's not public transit that will support that. Or I've been hearing a lot about that. Like, I follow... um, Zoe Duran, I don't know if you know mm. who she is, but uh, she, me and her were talking about like all the different things that we could do for like food and like uh, community gardens and all that kind of stuff. And um, she's been posting a lot about that. And I've seen somebody else post about how mm. we don't have like um, good, I guess it's like bus systems or no train systems yeah. to, to just get around. And like, in New York, that's what you got. You know, people, rarely do people have a car, you know, have a license they're always they're either using Uber or mm. they're on the train or they're on the bus. Like they've got a mass transit, but around here maybe it's because it is you know more spread out. Or I guess like in the yeah. Bartlett Cordova area, like we are right now. But you know, in downtown Memphis, it's it would be like, hey, I don't want to ride this scooter. You know, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. want to get on a bus or you know like right. have a train take me where I want to go. Yeah, so. my roommate bird scootered all the way back from downtown. We live in Midtown, like by the zoo. Okay. She bird scootered, you know, for like an hour from <laughs> from like yeah all the way downtown to where we live because there was no other. There were no Ubers and there was no way to you know. There's no bus. There's yeah. no um, yeah. But I think it. You know, I know that. Mata, like Memphis's area transit authority, has also had to implement a lot of vans instead of buses that mm. like are trying to reach because the city is so sprawled out and massive. Like they realized that they could actually try to reach more people if they have vans going around yeah, instead yeah. of um, buses that cost a lot more to operate. And I think it's really a reflection of the sprawl. Um, you know, that makes it really hard to plan better transit systems. And then it's like also a chicken and egg or a circular, you know, because we didn't have those better transit systems to begin with. Um, And because there were moments in Memphis history where those were almost funded and then weren't, like the the way the environment was built to Mm. reflect that is a direct result of not having that kind of system. Um, So then... Everybody, you know, there are super wide boulevards and everybody does drive and big interstates that really help you get around really quickly, but make it where you, you know, be extremely difficult to reach way out in Memphis sprawl with some super effective public transit. What are some things that you haven't seen that Mm. you would like to see that, um, you know, could be in the, in the works for in Memphis? Yeah. yeah. It could be anything, but. I'm yeah. Yeah, thinking Memphis. That's a really good question. I'm thinking. I'm just thinking through like things I've seen. Cause I'm so used to telling people like here are awesome things happening in Memphis. You should <laughs> check them out. I'm not used to being like here are awesome things happening elsewhere. I wish we were doing that. But I mean, thinking of examples of, of course public transit like we could have we could have like we had moments to have really effective public transit in memphis yeah. and we invested in like the the tourist trolleys which people mm-hmm. you know are are like cute but are not actually helping people 
get to work yeah, and yeah. like, you know, not an effective form of public transit. I mean, I think we could absolutely have um, more effective public transit. I think like, you know, what I love about New York is also how there's so much like street life and vibrant yeah, uh, yeah. life. And yeah. like in, in some cities, like you go to Austin and people are like, barbecuing on their front lawn and like in new orleans people are like it's it's such a like outdoor lively city yeah i think we could have more of that like we i know we've gotten some like new a lot of new bike lanes have been built we could have more like people out on the street but some of the low density and the sprawl makes it like a little harder to have these corridors where yeah. everybody's out, like hanging out. But you think of Memphis, like Memphis has a feel, like this community feel that would make you think like, oh yeah, come to Memphis. People are barbecuing on the front porch. Like you can come over, but it's not it's not really like that mm. in the way other cities might be. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, just like you can't walk around, you know, I would love if I could walk to a restaurant or like walk to get coffee and it's really challenging too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something that I've noticed is like, um, street lights in certain areas. It's just, yeah. that, that, that makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, even going toward my, like I live in Cordova and I live on, uh, it's Macon and uh, Houston Levy and like, there's no street lights out there. And somebody came by our house one time they're like, it's really dark. <laughs> I mean, I live in a pretty nice neighborhood, but yet there's no street lights. They're like, why is it totally pitch black? Yeah. yeah it's- and that can be mm-hmm. great for light pollution, but <laughs> because now you can see the stars and all that kind of stuff. It's great. Don't get me wrong. But mm-hmm. that's the type of stuff, you know, small things like that. Just having lit areas, that's what yes. gives it that life, you know? That yes. Just you feel like, oh, this, this area is fun. I can see. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Really well at streets is like a really critical urban design thing. Yeah. And people also talk about it a lot in terms of safety. Like it's hard to name f- direct interventions that result in more safe people perceiving they're safer, but more safe areas than like more light. Because yeah, yeah. you can see where you're going, see everything happening on the street. Um, yeah. I definitely think, yeah, better lit streets. And there's always like, like a light, we have a street light in my backyard that just totally went out. <laughs> and like, I've every, I'm trying to go take the trash out and I just like can't see anything. Um, That's pretty crazy. So, like, and then the big ice storm, when I went, we didn't have power for like five days. And when I went home to get stuff, because I was staying at a friend's house, I saw like the stars, you know, in the middle of Midtown looked mm. up and was like, this is amazing. Um, because then when you don't have those lights, you see, like, amazing stars and, yeah. But, I mean, I completely agree. More street lights, like, totally change the feeling of a street. Yeah, yeah. Like, those things are the type of information that you need to get from the people. Like, mm-hmm. if you don't live in those areas, you're never going to know. And mm-hmm. if you don't get that kind of feedback from the people who live in those areas, then you're you're not going to, you know, implement those things because of that feedback. Like those, you know, if you're doing like a city surveys or something like that, Mm. like those things really help you out and and giving the people what they, Mm -hmm. what they want or what they need for sure. Yeah. I think that's a really good point, especially like it also really speaks to who gets actually heard 
when their neighborhoods where residents like speak up more or like for whatever reason feel like they are a little closer to power so like they can be heard and get their lights fixed and then there are other more disinvested neighborhoods where people are like well no one's ever come and fixed our lights before why would i assume like i don't know the head of mlgw where i don't know somebody who like i'm not close to a position of power uh so you often see like wealthier whiter neighborhoods be like i could you know i can call up and complain about i can file a like um code violation about things going on in my neighborhood i can call and complain about all these things i have more of a voice uh and then other neighborhoods where tenants and residents get left behind um and it's not just their fault for not speaking up it's like you know also how the neighborhoods have been designed and the fact they have not gotten the same resources as other neighborhoods absolutely um so let's wrap this up um what are all your ways that people can reach you and then also um how people can i guess help out and and do do more for you um so you can reach me on email margaret at uh the works cdc margaret at the works cdc.org um you can also like send me a message on Facebook or LinkedIn. I don't have a Twitter yet. Maybe one day, but for now I don't. <laughs> uh, you can like shoot me a message on one of those platforms. Instagram. I got an Instagram. Mg Haltem. Um, what was the other? Oh, and how people can join, like get involved. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, there. I mean, I will put. I'm always ready to put a volunteer to work. Um, like last summer, we would just have volunteers come in, and I would say, "Oh my gosh, amazing!" Like here could you can you reach out to these tenants and tell them about what documents they are missing to be eligible like oh these tenants have court next week could you shoot them text and i would set up like a google text line so they can Mm. just fire off text to tenants um we love using volunteers even people like you don't have to be you know you can be a high school student college student anybody and we can find a way to put you to use talking to tenants if you want to talk to tenants also, the works does a lot of things. Like I didn't even talk about, we have amazing community gardening programs going on where we're always looking for volunteers. Uh, like tomorrow, we're sorting thousands of bags of fruit um, at one of our. The works has a mobile grocery, or we're developing a mobile grocery store, but we also have a brick and mortar grocery store and a farmers market in South Memphis. And so, at that uh, farmers market location, is a full grocery store. And so, like, tomorrow we're going to be bagging a lot of fruits, like thousands and thousands of bags of fruit. So, you know, we could always use help. Um, We also have law students that help us, that volunteer. And, like, we had, we hosted the U of M Alternative Spring Break, and we had law students who came for a full week and got to go to court and um, assist in representing tenants and, like, stand up. You know, we have law students who stand up on tenants' behalfs and speak to the judge. Um, So... A total range if you want to bag fruit or weed in a garden. Like I will work with our community garden group and sometimes just spend an afternoon of a weekend weeding. Like reach out. You can reach me, Margaret, at theworkscdc.org. Uh, and yeah, anything that you're interested in, we can talk and find some way to put you to work. So <laughs> would love that. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank, thank you so you. much. Thank this you for having me. This very so informational. This is, um, I'm going to have to listen to this. Again. Like, <laughs> so, there, there are very few <laughs> podcasts I do where I'm just like, 
I have to listen again to like <laughs> digest that information, but this is one of them. Thank for sure. you. This is so fun. Awesome. I really feel like I learned a lot and love just being a part of the conversation. So awesome. thank you. All right. Well, uh, thank for everybody for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Thank you.